We are starting a new series as of today. We spent four weeks looking at gospel-shaped community. We're now starting a series on what it means to be a gospel-centered church. We wanted to place this series back-to-back with our community series because both are foundational for how we think of ourselves and how we interact as a church family. Now, when we say Sojourn is a gospel-centered church, that seems pretty self-explanatory, right? We are centered on the gospel. But practically speaking, what does that mean? What are we saying when we describe Sojourn as gospel-centered? Well, in this series, we're going to see that we're saying at least five things. First, we're saying that we're committed to the Trinity, or we could say we're Trinitarian. Second, we're committed to Christ-centered preaching, or we could say expositional. Third, we're committed to spiritually formative worship services, or we could say liturgical. Fourth, we're committed to the Great Commission, or we might say we are missional. And five, we're committed to gospel community, or we could say communal. Now, we've spent four weeks on that, so we won't have a separate sermon on number five, but we are going to take the next four weeks and look at each of those first four realities. So this week, we're going to look at what we mean when we call Sojourn a gospel-centered church. We are saying that we are robustly Trinitarian. Now, as we say that, I hope you're kind of thinking back to this service. Every song we sang intentionally this morning referenced Father, Son, and Spirit. Our profession of faith was a reiteration of who the Trinity is. And even in prayer, we highlighted the fact that we worship the Father through the Son in the Spirit. So what does it mean to be Trinitarian? And I'm just going to point us back to the profession of faith that we made. And in the New City Catechism, there is this question, how many persons are there in God? And we answered that together this morning by saying that there are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now it's possible that you're sitting here thinking, perhaps a bit frustrated at this point, why are we talking about the Trinity again? After all, back in September, almost an entire message was spent on the Trinity. Maybe for you, the reality of the Trinity seems too esoteric, too ethereal, nothing of substantial, of substance rather, for us to hitch our lives to in a workaday world. Is Trinitarian theology really a hill? that we need to plant our flag upon as a gospel-centered church. Well, consider these numbers from an annual survey done by Ligonier Ministries. The report is called the State of Theology Report. And in that report, they ask individuals to answer 35 questions using a spectrum. So answers range from strongly agree to strongly disagree, and there's multiple choices in between those. So they give a statement, and then you are to list whether you agree, 
disagree, strongly agree, strongly disagree to that. Here's one statement. This is the statement. The Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. I wonder how you would answer that. Don't have to answer. I wonder how you would answer that. 60% of self-identified evangelicals agreed or strongly agreed with that statement. That means that six out of ten self-identified evangelicals hold to a heretical belief about the Holy Spirit. Here's another statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 73% of self-professing evangelicals agreed or strongly agreed with that statement. 73% of self-professed evangelicals hold to a heretical belief about our Lord Jesus Christ. What we believe about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit matters because heretical belief is the alternative if we're not careful here. These are the stakes, and the stakes are high. So now as we turn our attention to the text of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, on into chapter 4, My goal this morning is that you as an individual and that we as a church corporately would see in this passage the beauty and the perfection of the one who is three. That we would come to delight and love the Trinity more and more because of these brief moments together. So, here we go. Three reasons we embrace the Trinity as a gospel-centered church. Number one, The Trinity is the only source of freedom through the Spirit. The Trinity is the only true source of genuine freedom through the Spirit. Look at verse 18, or rather 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. So as Paul writes to the Corinthians, he names the Spirit of God as the Lord. He is not a force. He is a personal being, co-equal in glory and majesty with God the Father and God the Son, and He is worthy of our worship of our love, of our honor, and of our obedience. And here, in this text, he is seen as the agent of freedom. He brings freedom. That freedom, Paul then says, results in transformation. We are transformed more and more in the image of Jesus as we submit to the Spirit. In fact, the gospel could easily be summed up as an invitation into true, genuine freedom. But I wonder, do you feel enslaved today? And if so, in what ways? 
in the quiet moments of your day, what appears in your consciousness that as it appears brings with it mental, emotional, or spiritual shackles? Maybe you feel enslaved by your past. Maybe the terrible things you have done or wicked acts committed against you feel unbreakable and dominating. Friend, this text says to you this morning that the Spirit comes to bring you freedom. He's able to transform your past so that it becomes the black velvet against which the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ shines more and more beautifully like a diamond. He's able to redeem all the pain and the sorrow and the guilt and the shame, all for his glory and for his honor. And he does this in order to draw you deeper into communion with him. But maybe for you, you feel enslaved by fear and anxiety. Maybe your insecurities have created an unseen prison cell and you feel trapped, detained, restricted. Your joy and your delight seems gone and you just feel crushed under broken dreams and desires that are unfulfilled. What does the text say? The text says that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Spirit comes to bring us freedom, and He's able to transform our anxiety and our fear into hope and dependence upon God as we wait for Him in the restoration of all things and the redemption of our bodies. The Spirit brings us face to face with the beauty of Jesus Christ, and in so doing, He brings us deeper and deeper into God's love for us to the point that he brings us to the realization that we've been adopted by the Spirit into the family of God. We are more loved and accepted in him than we could possibly dare imagine. I wonder if you believe that, Christian. Are you living into the freedom that the Spirit brings? And your experience of anxiety becomes an invitation from God to fellowship with Him. To find in Him grace and mercy that's deeper than your anxiety. To find in Jesus the kindness and the mercy that meets you where you, you are at and brings you into freedom. But maybe you're sitting here this morning and for you, you feel enslaved by your sin. Maybe your greed has been staring you in the face this morning. Or maybe it's uninhibited sexual freedom that's become your bondage. Or maybe your desire to control and manipulate people has just left a devastating trail of relationships in your wake. Friend, the Spirit comes to bring you freedom. Your sin may be great, but the Spirit comes near to bring you into genuine 
freedom from that sin. His presence with you is not merely to comfort you. It is that, but more than that, it's to help you. Dear Christian, the Spirit of God is upon you so that by His strength and in your weakness, you are able to defeat the power of sin by returning over and over and over again to the gospel of Jesus. The gospel that tells you that in Christ you are forgiven, you are free, and you have been brought into the restoration and renewal of all things. The Spirit brings freedom. Perhaps you're familiar with the Iranian hostage crisis of the 1970s. Full disclosure, I was not around then. Many of you were not either. But a group of individuals were taken hostage by Iranians as they raided the U.S. Embassy. But a lesser-known aspect of that story is that six men and women actually escaped as the situation was unfolding, and they were hidden by the Canadian ambassador and his wife in their home. So these six individuals, from the outside, visibly they seemed to be free. They were not bound, they had no shackles, but in reality they were captives. They could not leave the Canadian ambassador's home, and if they were seen there, they would have been captured. And they couldn't just make their way out of the country without putting themselves in incredible danger. So the CIA and the Canadian government made an elaborate plan to bring them home. But put yourself in the shoes of one of those six individuals. When two CIA operatives show up at the home that you're hiding, fearing for your life in, and they tell you, we can bring you to freedom. You can either trust those two CIA operatives to bring you out of the pseudo-freedom in which you find yourselves into genuine freedom in the U.S., or you could refuse to trust them and remain in constant jeopardy of being discovered and taken hostage. Now, historically, when the CIA operatives showed up, all six of those individuals chose to trust them, and the end of the story is they were brought back to the States unharmed. But friends, where the Spirit of the Lord shows up, there is freedom, and you and I are faced with a similar choice. Will we choose to live in the freedom that the Spirit offers us? Will we trust Him as He directs our gaze to Jesus through the means of the Word of God and community? Will we follow Him out of our daily captivity into the freedom of what it means to be sons and daughters of God, even if it's uncomfortable? And more than that, will we as a church be like that Canadian ambassador inviting others to experience genuine freedom, not the pseudo-freedom that our world holds out as something beautiful? Are we willing to be that individual inviting people to experience a better way of living, a true vision of a flourishing human life in the Spirit?
So the Trinity is our only source of freedom through the Spirit. But number two, the Trinity is our only source of mercy from the Father. Look at chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Instead, we've renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the Word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now Paul says, quote, we were shown mercy. Now, the Father is the one who shows mercy upon men and women. And you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, we once showed up in these verses as a part of the group that is blinded. We were unable to see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in Christ, who is the image of God. The beauty of the gospel was veiled to us. It was foolishness. We couldn't see it for what it was. And maybe, do you remember those days? Can you think back to when Christianity was just form and function and religion and duties and obligation, but not an experience of true life in Jesus? But then the Father had mercy on us, and He brought us into His Son. And what grace is this? And the fact that mercy comes only from the Father actually invites us deeper and deeper into difficult realities found in this text. Did you see what they were? Well, first, the text tells us that it's possible to preach the gospel and to engage in gospel ministry in a shameful, underhanded sort of way, in a way that distorts God's Word. Now, we're going to talk more about that in some form next week. For now, let's just acknowledge that this is a possibility. And let's also acknowledge as a church that this is not what we want for sojourn. We do not want to engage in gospel ministry in an underhanded, deceptive sort of way. So there's one difficulty. But there's a second difficulty. Since the Father is the one who shows mercy, that means that you and I must be willing to submit to the Father's plan in order to invite others into an experience of this mercy. God is the one who shows mercy. We are simply conduits of grace. Now, we may want to be more than this, and we may want to do more than this. I mean, isn't it kind of tempting to want to build a platform for Sojourn Community Church? 
Isn't it kind of tempting to want to be somebody or gain a following? Isn't it kind of tempting to do something more than what God has called us to do? I know it is for my own heart. Or maybe we want to do less than this. We actually want to go about our lives quietly and ignore a world that is blinded. But that's not our calling. Our calling is to proclaim the gospel. Our role is limited for sure, but it's vital. So what does that role look like? It looks, according to this text, openly displaying the truth. That takes both words and deeds. And when we engage in gospel ministry in that way, then we are actually clearing our conscience before God and before others. But there's a third difficulty in this text that brings us down to an even deeper level of difficulty. Do you see what it is? Even an open display of the truth doesn't mean that everyone will receive it. Sometimes we are idealists, aren't we? We think that if we say the right thing in the right moments, or if we live in such a way that the grace of Jesus and His love is so obvious to everyone, then obviously everyone's going to see the glory of Jesus and be saved. But that's not what this text says. The text says that there are those who have yet not believed the gospel because they are blinded by Satan. And Christian, that once described you and me, blinded by Satan. You see, the purpose of our great enemy is that men and women would not be able to see in the gospel the light and the glory of Jesus. Sure, you can see the gospel and even hear the gospel, but your enemy doesn't want you to see the glory of Jesus in the gospel because that's the crushing of his kingdom. No, he wants, our enemy wants people to be blinded. Now, may it never be that their blindness is in part because of our silence or our surliness. But nonetheless, blinded hearts and minds will continue, this text says. Because the Father is the one who shows mercy. And now we're back to our reliance on the Spirit. Because what we proclaim, the gospel we proclaim, cannot actually be received by those who haven't yet received it. They are incapable of receiving it unless the Spirit of God opens their eyes and brings them into freedom. The Spirit is the one who reveals truth. Now, I wonder if this describes you. You may be a very religious person. You prayed a prayer at some point in your life. And you are at least interested enough in religious things to be in this gathering here on a Sunday morning. But maybe to you the gospel just doesn't seem like good news. The Bible just seems kind of dry and dull. 
and you find that you don't have any affections for Christ. And you find that you don't even want to have affections for Christ. Friend, if that describes you, you need what only the Spirit can provide. There is nothing you can do internally to work up some sort of open reception of the gospel and the glory of Jesus. No, you need to be born again. You need the mercy of the Father. You need to be born again into the freedom of the Spirit. But friends, here's the good news. That is exactly the business that the Spirit is in. He's in the business of opening blind eyes. He's in the business of breathing life into dead bones. And if that describes you, what is it that is keeping you this morning from dropping the charade and embracing Christ? Is it your pride? Is it what might your spouse say? Or what would your family think? Are those really good reasons to not surrender to the beauty and the lordship of Jesus Christ? So how we as individuals and a church clear our consciences before God and others matters. Are we going to own our responsibilities without taking responsibility for what we shouldn't and what we can't? In other words, how are we going to openly display the truth? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Gospel facts and gospel acts. Gospel facts, the verbal proclamation of truth found in the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And anyone who receives him in repentant faith will have eternal life. But gospel acts also matter. The postures, the attitudes, the actions that decorate this beautiful gospel as we love one another and as we live, at, live out of the power available to us by the Spirit. And this represents and reflects our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Who was full of what? Both grace and truth, acts and facts. Now, maybe you consider yourself to be a truth champion as a Christian. You want to guard and protect the truth and proclaim the truth of the gospel specifically. You're all about the gospel facts side of things. Maybe you feel like you must get the whole gospel out before you've ordered at the restaurant for your waiter or your waitress. And can I just affirm that that desire, that instinct is noble. It's worthy. But we forget, if we forget the necessity of gospel acts along with gospel facts, then our voice, or rather the truth, will actually be shrouded by the shrillness in our voices and the coldness of our interactions. Because we can end up giving truth without grace, which isn't actually the truth of God. A small group of us from Sojourn a couple of weeks ago went to our Networks Leaders Summit in Louisville, Kentucky. We're part of the Harbor Church Planning Network. 
And uh, in one of the talks at this particular conference, Ronnie Martin was describing the relationship of truth to beauty. And he made this statement, beauty is how we taste the truth. Beauty is how we taste the truth. Now, Ronnie Martin didn't invent that. The scriptures say, come taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's why on this past Tuesday night, a group of us met here at this facility to then break up and go meet our neighbors here in Hill City. And we met people like 80-something-year-old Miss Lily. Miss Lily has lived in Hill City for 47 years. She had no idea that there was a church meeting a tenth of a mile from her house. And she would love to have someone come and help her rake leaves when they've stopped dropping off of the trees. We've met neighbors like a kind young man who was enjoying his music but stopped to talk and he talked about his friends who were struggling in math and would love someone to tutor them. We met neighbors who were concerned with the speed of traffic on Spears Street. Neighbors who walked their dogs together and wished that Stringer's Ridge had a little less garbage in it. And neighbors who love or would rather love a community block party. And so if you see yourself in some way as a truth champion, I want to invite you into the freedom of loving men and women as they are in this world. Gifting experiences of the gospel simply by your kindness in interacting with them. The dignifying of others in your conversation. The non-anxious presence you bring into each space that you walk into as you're being transformed by the Spirit. Whether you're raking leaves for a neighbor or delivering coffee to a frazzled mom or by befriending the widow or widower down the street. Allow the beauty of how you interact with image bearers of God be a taste for non-Christians of the truth that Jesus is Lord. And maybe you find yourself all about the grace and the love and the mercy side of things. The gospel acts side. You're in love with the idea of a beautiful and compelling life. And as I talked about those neighbors in your mind, like you were ready to sign up. Like I'll go and rake leaves. I'll, let's figure out some community block party. Can we, can we do a community center in town? And I want to affirm that those instincts, those desires are noble and good. In fact, maybe you're frustrated by the Christians that you see, whether online or in your circumstances, that seem to lob truth grenades at the world around them and then walk away from the resulting carnage and devastation. And you are right to be frustrated by those things. But as humans, our tendency, our inclination is to pull an either-or. Either we embrace truth or we embrace grace. But this passage provides a caution for us before we swing the pendulum from one to the other. 
This is a both and. We must embrace both grace-filled lives while embracing being ambassadors for the truth of the gospel. So if you see yourself more in this grace-displaying category, then the Bible's invitation to you is to experience the freedom and joy of being merely an ambassador carrying a message. A message from a far country, from a benevolent Lord. And you are free to interact with all those in your past path with grace and love and generosity and dignity through gospel acts. But you are also enabled by the Spirit to faithfully deliver the message that is not actually yours, but your Lord's. You are free to deliver gospel facts, freed from carrying the burden of what another's response might be. So as a church, we're going to embrace the Trinity first because it's the only source of freedom in the Spirit. And second, because the Trinity is the only source of mercy from the Father. And finally and briefly, the Trinity is the only source of light through the Son Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now we have this treasure, this message, this gospel in clay jars so that the extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. So Christian, let this soak in for a moment. Why do you believe? Why are you saved? Fundamentally, does it have anything to do with you? Or does it have everything to do with God? We are Christians having received mercy from the follower, Father, having become followers of Jesus, having been filled by the Spirit, because God Himself has shown in our hearts to give us His light so that we could receive the knowledge that God is glorious and so that we could see that knowledge in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that all of God's majesty, all of his beauty is seen once and for all in the suffering servant who is now the resurrected king. And we get to live out of his life by the Spirit as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now we live in a world that is crushingly man-centered. Do you feel that? In a world that tells you that everything, even truth, revolves around you and your feelings, the gospel actually invites us into something better. The world as it ought to be. The world with God at the center. God has entrusted us with this gospel. And how does this text describe us? It's not exactly flattering. 
We are clay jars. And God has put the gospel, this priceless treasure that will for eternity be celebrated and enjoyed, he has placed that into you, Christian. See, the gospel both humbles us and dignifies us. It humbles us because we see ourselves for who we really are. Sinners, broken, unable to even open our eyes to see light. Yet image bearers of God, shown mercy by God. And now men and women being remade in the image of Jesus Christ through the mercy of the Father in the power of the Spirit. And what's the result of all of this? Well, it shouldn't be that sojourn becomes the next up-and-coming church of Chattanooga. God forbid that sojourn build a platform for itself in Hill City. Because it's not about us. It's about the gospel. And so as a church, we're going to lean into doing very ordinary things, very old things, very rich things, like praying, like preaching the gospel, like living in community. Why? So that the extraordinary power may be seen to be God's and not us. Sojourn, we will remain robustly Trinitarian because the Trinity is the hope of the world. Because God the Father has shown us mercy, given us light in the Son, and brought us into true freedom in Jesus. So let's celebrate it, let's live into it, let's enjoy it, and let's make sure that God gets every ounce of glory he could possibly get from us as a people. Let's pray together. Father, we long that you would be glorified among us. We long that Jesus would be exalted to be seen the treasure that he genuinely is. We long to live in such a way that we follow Jesus into the true freedom that the Spirit gives. Father, thank you for bearing with our weaknesses and our infirmities. Thank you for acknowledging that we are but clay pots and thank you for entrusting your gospel to us. Father, if there's one here that has not yet experienced the new life in Christ, I pray that you would open their eyes by the Spirit so that they would see Jesus for who he is. Not simply a good teacher or a good man or someone to acknowledge Sunday to Sunday, but he is the Lord worthy of living every moment of life in submission. Father, glorify yourself. May we decrease 
so that the Lord Jesus might increase. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.